This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome to the new edition of TLS Voices. My name is Stig Abel, editor of the Times Literary Supplement. I'm joined as ever by commissioning editor and work-shy invalid Thea Lenardutzi. How are you feeling, Thea? I shall have you know that I, I actually received concerned phone calls after after last week's show. I think that's not because of what I said so much as how I said it. You, were, you, you weren't well, and then no. you got home and were very ill, weren't you? I was you? very, very ill. My voice in last week's show, should anyone care to listen, reached depths that no woman's voice has ever reached before. And it was a sign of impending doom, <laughs> doom. for you. But you're yeah, feeling so better now? I'm my bed. I'm feeling, I'm feeling No coughing fits? Uh, perhaps. We'll see. Okay. okay. <laughs> I'll do my best. We will do our best. Before we get to the show, I want to tell you a way to get a cheap subscription to the TLS. If you simply Google TLS subscriptions, type pod one in the offer code tab, you can get six issues for six pounds. And I should also should remind you that if you want to support this podcast, please do review us on iTunes. We really do welcome that, especially, but not only if you're very nice. Uh, coming up on this week's show, we're going to be discussing women on horseback with Jerry Kimber, the role of women in the rise of the Western. We've also sent our consulting editor on the arts, Anna Vo, out to the David Hockney exhibition at the Tate Britain. It's fasting ever, fastest ever selling arts show, I believe. Anna has been talking to Andrew Wilson, one of the curators. And finally, we'll be exploring that small and insignificant question as to what makes a successful book. Daisy Hilliard will give us all the answers. One of the great myths in America is that of the lonesome cowboy, stubbled and austere, fighting evil against the glinting backdrop of a hard scrabble landscape, a kind of epitome of maleness. But as Jerry Kimber sees in her review of three books set in the American world of the Gilded Age, women were instrumental in the story of westerns. First, female authors led the drive for improved quality in Western novel writing at the turn of the 19th century, trying to reclaim the genre from dime novel pulp fiction. The first quality Western, The Administratix, it's a very strange title, The Administratix, was written by a suffragist from Colorado called Emma Ghent Curtis in 1889, 13 years before Owen Wister wrote The Virginian, widely held to be the model for the reinvented genre and a very good novel too. So what precisely is the female influence on this purportedly masculine genre? And speaking of women with guns, we may also get into another book, Jerry reviews, the story of a bloody murder by the notorious Mrs. Clem. Jerry Kimber joins Thea and me now. 
Tell us, because I, I remember reading The Virginian. I really liked it. I read it in college, but I'd never heard of the Administratix uh, before. Uh, what's it like? Tell us about that. It was one of the most important books written by a female concerning the Western. But uh, the most important one for me was the novel Kojewi by Morning Dove. Okay. Tell us uh, about that. The, yeah, the, well, she was one of the very first um, Native American women to have a book published. I think there were only two bef- before her. There was a female protagonist, which was unusual in itself. She portrayed uh, mixed race um, relationships and marriage, which had taken place ever since, you know, the uh, the Westerners had gone to conquer the West. Pretty uh, Native American girls were very often taken up by the conquering European males. This book was um, absolutely groundbreaking um, in, in its importance for showcasing an indigenous culture using the, the genre of the Western, which was so male, West, you know, male-dominated and in particular um, dominated by um, a European tradition, which had nothing to do with the uh, Native American. That was true even when it was written by women. I mean, one of the striking things from your review, that even though there were female novelists, they were tending to write novels about male heroes where they might comment on the, the, the difficulty of the life for, for Western women, but it wasn't really seeking to sort of break the mould too much. Is this an exception? No, not at all. They were, they were um, centred around their own culture and gender expectation. That was their war. Their war was never about the, 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 the vicious cruelty um, being perpetrated upon um, the, indig- the indigenous peoples of, of America. They had their own axes to grind, and that was about gender inequality um, and class to a certain extent as well. And the, it was only with, with Morning Dove's novel um, that, from a, you know, from a fiction point of view, started to think about the, um, the, the role of, of the Native American in such novels. Did Morning Dove sort of problematise the, the racial opposition there? Did she sort of create more sympathetic uh, characters? She did. It was the title of the book was Kojewi, The Half-Blood, you know, it was so even from the, the title itself, it's that sort of white man notion, isn't it? Of uh, I'm sure the Native Americans didn't call themselves half-bloods. That was a, a sort of a, a Western fixation on what they had become, half-bloods. Um, and um, it's, it's, a, it's the plight of the mixed blood or breed, as they were also known, um, who live in both white and Indian cultures. Many um, Native Americans had... Uh, Indian mothers and white fathers. That was quite common. Uh, And that began even before the conquering of the West with fur traders, trappers, other, other, you know, and other explorers. Uh, Is it a good good novel, Jerry? I mean, is it it one of those, I mean, was it influential or was it just, did it end up a curiosity, a kind of exception? Absolutely the latter, much more of a curiosity. It's only Victoria Lamont has done a lot to reinvigorate this this tradition 
and to reinvigorate Morning Dove and other writers like her um, who were trying to do something with the Western from a feminist perspective, which most of us never think about that. You know, it's such a male-dominated, testosterone-driven genre that we, we barely think about any role that, that females might have had in perpetrating the genre. Uh, you mentioned in, in the piece also um, Annie Oakley, a sort of ro- rodeo, <laughs> rodeo cowgirl, and you say that they're seen as the first ever female athletes. Um, if we're thinking of, a, of the West as something which is kind of male-dominated in a particular type of macho world, how do rodeo cowgirls fit into to that world? Because they had freedom. Um, in um, my review, I talk about how a lot of women at this time, um, when um, Westerners were colonising um, the West and taking it away from the indigenous peoples, the lot of women was dire. I mean, a lot of the men wasn't much better, but the women had almost no agency. There was, they cooked, they cleaned, they grew vegetables. It was a hard life. But then you have these women, um, you know, sharpshooting in Buffalo Bill's Wild West show, and um, they were they were as as the the, uh, the book explains, they were feminised versions of the Western male hero. They became heroines, and boy, did they have agency. They wore glamorous costumes. They travelled not only America but the world um, because Buffalo Bill's Wild West show did um, come to Europe, and they led a very glamorous life. And they were also very fit. You know, they were bareback horse riding they were doing all sorts um and you know and to that surprising extent that they were known as the first group of professional women athletes in north america well let's talk about another woman who perhaps was judged differently for her attempt to be independent because the the third book that you review is about mrs nancy clem who was a beautiful fascinating and clever woman and perhaps therefore was caught up in this double murder of Jacob and Nancy Young in 1868. Um, what's, what do you take from, from, from the story? It, was a, it became a sort of notorious case, didn't it? It did become, you know, nationally notorious. It was, um, you know, people could, during the height, during its height, people talked of very little else, you know, than one of the most uh, horrific um, things ever to happen you know, in the history of the world, I think there was one headline uh, which was rather enthusiastic and a little, you know, over-exaggerated. Good headline. <laughs> but um, it was very strange. You know, even now, no one really knows what happened. Um, that no one knows if Mrs. Clem was guilty or innocent. You know, and um, she was acquitted. I mean, the, the, she was she was tried, wasn't she? And she was yeah, acquitted. Yeah, four times. Four times she was tried. She was found guilty um, on one of the the trials and did spend some time in prison. But she had very good lawyers who um, who then fought her 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 cause, and she was eventually acquitted. Much of the fascination around her, though, wasn't even so much to do with the crime, so much as to do with the fact that this was a woman who was exactly. And we're back. Yeah, we're back to that idea of of the role of women again. Um, Mrs. Clem ran a sort of very covert brokerage service, borrowing money from people who had it, offering them very high interest rates, lending it to other people, again, at high interest rates. But the whole thing was unsustainable. When the people who had 
loaned her the money, wanted it back with interest rates. Sometimes she was able to to give it, other times she refused. And, you know, it was a system that was always going to crash. And um, one of her, um, she she had two male partners. And when Jacob Young realized that he was in way over his head, he took about $9,000 in notes and ran off with his wife, but he only got a few miles away. Um, and he was found the next day brutally murdered. He'd been shot in the head. His wife had also been shot with a different gun and burnt from the sort of neck downwards. It was a really gruesome murder. And even and this remove, uh, what does the, the person who wrote the book think? Did Is it the, the view that she did it or that she didn't? What's the prevailing um, I don't think Wendy Gamble... It's impossible. She, I mean, it's a brilliant book. I, I thoroughly recommend it. But I don't think that, that she can... She could really form a conclusion because there isn't enough evidence. The evidence was a footprint a footprint that had been found but that was it the evidence was so flimsy that it was hard there was some slight circumstantial evidence and it was clearly what she was doing was wrong and illegal but um that wasn't what she was being tried for she was being tried for a murder and um and the evidence for that was just too slim is it simplistic to say to a certain extent she was being tried for being a woman trying to enter what yep. would have been an extraordinarily male world of not only business but money lending so you're in a male society anyway and then you're in a particularly male branch of that society do you think that 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 was clearly a factor in all this it was it was almost the only factor um nobody could believe that a woman a woman could be, in, number one, tried for murder, but number two, tried for murder because, you know, there are always these cases of, uh, of p- crimes of passion, etc., etc. but tried for murder to do with business, financial business. You know, it was unheard of, and that was her downfall, really, and why she was so vilified um, for such a long time was that she was going against the grain of American society. Women didn't do what Mrs. Clem did, but it was so in her blood she couldn't not be what she was. Mm, there's a line from one of the um, from one of the prosecutors in, in the case that sort of sums up the mood really, and it's uh, financial dealings violated her marriage contract, thereby rendering her capable of the worst acts. So it's almost her crime was basically the crime of not acting like a lady, which is in in this context exactly. is seen as a fast track to becoming a murderer. <laughs> but even when she was finally acquitted and she was able, uh, you know, to sort of go out into the big wide world, she was soon lending and borrowing again. It was you know unbelievable. You'd think that she would have learned her lesson. And then finally ending up as Mrs. Dr. Patterson, um, you know, purporting to be a a doctor, peddling the most obnoxious uh, lotions and potions, one of which led to a man's death. She got away with that as well. She she, She was incarcerated in prison for larceny for some other dodgy financial dealings but got away with the murder of this man and, um, you know, and eventually died. And then after her death, uh, all the all her sort of miscreant life was brought back up to the fore and sensationalised in the press again. Someone it's needs to make a, a film life. about this life. If, if they haven't already, somebody needs to do that. <laughs> well, they should. I, I, one thing I did want to bring up in the review, but I, there wasn't really space for it, and it was sort of slightly off-topic, was in that with, to do with the, the gun, you know, that gun the one that won the West, the Winchester, was that one of the family members ended up creating this very famous house in California, which some people may oh, have Oh, the Winchester Mansion. 
the I've Winchester been. Mis- you've been the <laughs> Winchester been. Mystery House, yeah. which I had heard of. Now, it's a place I've always wanted to go to. It absolutely fascinates me. This idea of 24,000 square feet of, of, of 160-room mansion built over 38 years by a woman who was absolutely convinced that the fortunes of her father's of her husband's family, because he was... Um, a Winchester. He died young of tuberculosis. Their daughter had died as a child um, uh, of, a, of an illness, and that all the mis- their misfortune was to do with the bad luck because the Winchester money had been built on murder. You know, not just the murder of white people, but the murder of, of, uh, of the indigenous peoples. And that to atone for this, a spirit medium had said to her, "Keep building. If you bu- if you move to the west." and build a house and never finish it, they will not come for you. And that's what she did. Tell you what, Jerry, it's been uh, you've uncovered some fascinating stories. I mean, it's 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 it's, 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 it's probably is indicative of the West, isn't it? That it is a, it is a it is a part of the world and it's part of history that is brim full of kind of fascinating curiosities. Absolutely, it's uh, you know, and I hope it sort of will, will reinvigorate it because we don't really watch black and white westerns on TV anymore, or Bonanza or The High Chaparral that some of us as tiny tots grew up on. But um, you know, it's it's it was massive, and um, and I hope these books have done something to sort of reinvigorate it. Yeah, that's really, it's a, a great point. Well, Jerry, thank you so much for for doing uh, writing the review and for joining us uh, today. Um, the Winchester Mansion is... Is it, it cool? It is. So it's she's so, so strange. So she's, not, so she's not allowed to finish it? Well, so, I mean, when I when I went, the um You the do guide... sound, you sound tuberculotic <laughs> yourself. <laughs> Only slightly. Um, it's fine. It's not... I don't think I'm contagious okay. anymore. Um, Typhoid fear. <laughs> but um, at, at the mansion, the guide, the guide was saying that it wasn't so much that she was told that she must never finish it. It was that she was building all of these uh, annexes and additions to the house to sort of throw the ghosts of those that they had killed over the years off course. So you, you'll open a cupboard and there's a half a staircase uh, or, you know, a staircase or that's upside down to fool the ghosts. And she would every night sleep in a different part of the house so that they would never find her. Just when you when you think the, the gun history of America can't get any stranger, <laughs> yeah. uh, it always does, isn't it? Everything about guns in America mm. is ultimately puzzling, isn't it? Mm-hmm. It's just an extraordinary thing that, A, the feeling that they've... Correctly feeling that her fortune comes from the death of people. Mm. And then now the fact that guns are still so fetishised mm. in America. And, you know, the stats always get, but 30 people are murdered every year by armed toddlers mm. in America. I know it gets used a lot, but it still, still well, shocks it never, you. Yeah, it never it, fails to it, it <laughs> is still, it, it, it is still effectively astonishing, isn't yeah. it? And the, this Western thing we've been talking about, the Western myths, the idea of the, the rugged individual man who has to sort of protect there's a bit of kind of emersonian transcendentalism self-reliance in it there's mm. a bit of but it's it's based on the ability to defend your lands to to push ever westward to take mm. what you think is yours mm. um and that's that's a very resonant myth isn't it mm. yeah and i wonder how transferable it is we we ran out of time there with jerry jerry but i i know that she she's a uh, she's written about um catherine mansfield and janet frame so there's there's a new zealand connection and i wondered whether other places that had a similar history had a, a similar uh, literary flourishing as well so say in new zealand where you've got the west coast and they had a gold rush yeah. and these uh, wild frontier towns and indigenous peoples who were who were killed and um, yeah. and australia as well and, and australia yes i want so i don't know answer answers on a postcard or something but i mean i'd love to know whether the the, whether the, the western fron- tradition yeah. is, is replicated frontier around the world. literature how 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 global is frontier mm. literature
Yeah, we should look into that. That's a great point. Uh, we have to move on. Uh, the painter David Hockney is being honoured by a retrospective at the Tate Britain, tracing his career from the early sketches of the 1960s to previously unseen new paintings. It is the fastest selling exhibition in the gallery's history with 20,000 advanced tickets sold. So we thought we'd send our consulting editor on the arts, Anna Vaux, to the Tate to nose around and report back on this most celebrated and commercial of British artists. She's also talking here to one of the exhibition's curators. Can you tell me how you've curated this? How, you, how are you hoping we're going to experience it? How's, how's the show unfolding? Where well, are we standing? Now? Okay, we're standing in the first room. And in a way, this is an a room to orientate the, the, the visitor because as an artist who's worked in an um, incredibly diverse um, way, a huge variety of approaches to picture making and use of media, um, which unfold chronologically in a sense, so where the you know, the, the show is a very straightforward, chronological um, walk through the last 60 years of his, of his career. The first room, in a sense, asks the question, well, what is at the core of this? What is at the core of, of his work? And so, so these paintings dated from 1963, so the early 60s, the early 70s, mid, mid to late 70s, and uh, a, rec a recent work from 2014, I think. And it's, I see it's called Play Within a Play, this one. It is, which takes the title from, from a 1963 painting of uh, um, his uh, dealer, John Casman, which is called Play Within a Play. And Do you want to describe what's going on? Yes, here? absolutely. So here we've, we've got a... Uh, uh, an, an image of a man with his hands held up, pressed against um, a sheet of perspex. Oh, yes, yes. Um, and it derives from a photograph of Casman pressed against the glass door of his gallery in Bond Street. And he stands, however, in an impossibly shallow space between the glass and the tapestry with the chair beside him. And the tapestry behind him um, in a way, is playing on a number of things. So the, the, a curtain appears in a large number of David Hockney's works through the 60s, um, very much as a, a signal for a theatre of representation, you know, sort of the play of artifice. Um, you know, in, a, in a way, it stands as one... Um, sign for, for the act of, of representation. And here the, tap the curtain is a tapestry. It may be even um, a, a, a theatre curtain, a drop curtain perhaps, or a flat even. It's got tassels around it. And on the, on, on, on the, ta on the tapestry, is a landscape with figures. There's a, a, what looks like a solid rainbow casting a shadow. Uh, which is a bit yeah. strange, and there, there's elongated figures. He, the, through the sixties, he paints a number of, of figures, almost as hieratic kind of uh, ancient monuments. Almost. She looks very Egyptian. Very Egyptian or Assyrian, yeah. And but this idea of you know a, a, 
shallow layering of different kinds of reality. We've got a, the real material of Perspex. Has been pressed against it. Well, he looks very trapped. Very trapped, and his hand, his hands, and nose, and his um, the the bottom of his jacket are brushing against the the perspex, leaving an imprint. And the imprint, however, is on our side of the perspex. It's not underneath. It's on our side. Can you show me how this is picked up in the in? Yeah, sure. I mean, ba basically, what <coughs> if, if we if we, if we look at this this painting um, which is a, a, a painting ostensibly of David Hockney drawing at his table I should say we're still in the same we're still in the, the same, same room. room we're still in the we first room anywhere. we have <laughs> we've just moved across from one wall to the and other and but this is painted when this is painted in 1977 and it's a painting of um, his boyfriend Gregory Evans asleep on a divan in the studio and he's we see David Hockney drawing behind the figure so it's, it's sort of almost as if the role, the, the, you know, you'd expect David Hockney to actually, if he's picturing yes. his boyfriend, to be where we are. But actually, that isn't, that, that, this is a painting of a painting. We've stumbled well. on a very private moment looking at his boyfriend yeah. Yeah. and yeah. him drawing. Mm. In spite of all the colour, it's incredibly quiet mm. picture. Mm. So we are very intimately involved. Yes. And I think that, that in very many different ways, he draws us into, the, into his work. OK, so, so the, the, the second room... But this is very unexpected. ...suddenly plunges us into a world of abstraction. And a very different colour palette. A very well. different, very muted, very browns and greys and, and creamy off-whites and a painting that looks like a form of abstract expressionism. An abstract expressionism that owes as much to British and European painters, such as Alan Davy, Roger Hilton, or European artists like, like Jean Dubuffet, as much as to American abstract expressionism. And yet it's, you look closely as, as this develops, and you see letters appearing and then words appearing. And what this evolves into is a, a form of subversion of the, of the abstraction. And the abstraction takes on other meanings to do with his own sexuality, essentially. You know, these have become paintings that he described at the time as propaganda for homosexuality. And, you know, these are the paintings that he was first really well known for. And their paintings, I mean, it's like look at, looking at this, the, the painting We Two Boys Together Clinging, takes, you know, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a poem by Walt Whitman. Yes. It's also a title that um, comes from a newspaper cutting that he found, uh, the story about two boys cling together on, cling, cling to cliff, cling together on cliff. And it, it's about 
two, two boys that were trapped on a cliff and had to be rescued from a cliff. But to David Hockney, who had a crush at the time on Cliff Richards, it had other, it had other connotations. There's, there's this very simple kind of coding going on, 4-2, which stands... These are a, numbers in the, in the left-hand corner. corner painted in so, right, 4.2. 4.2, and 4 is A, B, C, D, and 2 is B, D, B, Dollboy, so Cliff Richard, um, and here is 4.8, which is C, R, which is, so this number is on one of the figures. In fact, it's tw on the figure twice. Um, and so, in a way, he's inscribing his own desires into, into this painting. The, the title, in a sense, clings to, you know, acts as an arm, drawing the two figures together, and one also clings to the other. Um, and in a way, it's sort of very, very, um, I think, in a way, courageous, because, I mean, this is, you know, homosexuality mm. was, was illegal at the time. I mean, there's... Let's have a look at this painting. OK. California Art Collector. 1964. 1964. So it's, it's a, a painting of a, a generic art collector surrounded by a range of art, well, to a sculpture that may be a sort of William Turnbull sculpture and a sort of Egyptian or Easter Island kind of sculptural head in a canopied enclosure with a sort of rug or shag pile carpet and, and an armchair, a solid rainbow. I mean, I think already the, 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 the way in which Hockney was fascinated by the question of how you paint colour, which is light, so how do you paint light? How do you paint water? How do you paint glass? These sort of insubstantial but very substantial things that are not solid, not always changing. And I think that, you know, this is a, a moment when, <clears throat> you know, sort of, there's a sort of tip starts to happen between an art that's formed largely from imagination to an art that's very much about observation. I mean, all of, the, all of these works are in this room, are move, fluctuating between, in different ways, between imagination and observation. So, man in a museum, or you're in the wrong movie, the painting to the left there. And also the, fir the first marriage and marriage of styles, you know, a title which actually describes Hockney's work throughout this idea of a marriage of styles being of almost archetypal postmodern artist. Um, both of them were were um, had their source in seeing a friend walking around a museum and seeing him standing next to you know, in the Egyptian room or whatever, with a sculpture or a mummy or what have you, and thinking, gosh, that's an interesting relationship. And I think when we go into the next room, we'll see how, how, that, sh how that shifts looking forward to, towards the double portraits where the subject of the work becomes not only you know, the, the urge towards a new form of naturalism, but also making a painting that is about relationships. And so, um, 
you know, an emotional spark between the two people depicted, but also between David Hockney as the third, the third, the third uh, participant. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. It's in, 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 in the relationship, which is us. Yeah. Thea, where do you stand on Hockney? Is he important to you? Is he important to the country, to the world? I was about to say I own a few Hockneys, but of course I don't. <laughs> I own a few Hockney prints. Um, I really, I, I definitely want to go and see this show. I think I will probably be disappointed. Um, I'm not a huge fan of his his later work. I, not, I really not, like. Not many people are. I don't. Yeah, think. I, I I really like his his sketches, his portraits um, from the seventies. His portraits of Celia, I yeah. think they're, they're, they're quite beautiful. And then I love his photographic portraits from from the 80s, I suppose, of Gregory. And yeah. I, I think that's where, for me, he, he was he was strongest. And I, I'm, I don't really go for all the iPad stuff. No, the iPad stuff is <laughs> utterly baffling to me because it does look, you know, my daughter has an iPad thing that she draws on. And the problem is it's just thick lines. Mm. I, I, it doesn't. I mean, well, I'm and sure... I, I understand it as a, you know, this is a kind of a, this is a clever critique of or. or, or or work against work, or, yeah. or whatever. I can I can understand the theory behind why it's interesting, but I still don't like it. But this will be big for the Tate, won't this, it? This will oh, it'll be absolutely huge. I mean, yeah, it will blow all of their. Um, and they'll make some money. Yeah, exactly. That's what I mean. They'll they'll make an absolute fortune because he. I can't think of anyone who has as big a, a, a position in, in British art. There's or, probably not a living. Uh, I wonder if there's a living artist. That they would that could rival him for this level of uh, uh, commercial attention. Yeah, I, it's hard to say. Prob- probably not because he unites so many people. 
um, yeah. you know, high, low, whatever. And he's been around. I mean, and he's like, been around and he's had a very interesting life. And he also, he, I mean, for the most part, he, you know, he, he, he's, he's very present. He, he quite often will comment on things like, you know, the smoking ban or whatever. Yeah. So he's a figure he's a who is cult- relevant to many people. And there's kind of culture wars around him because yeah. there's issues around, presumably in the 80s and 70s when being gay was more of an issue. He, he was a figure for that and mm. working class background set against, sort of, so there's a kind of a class issues that surround mm. him. He's, he's, he's very modern in that sense, mm. isn't he? Yeah. Well, it's, it's on at the minute. Uh, you, won't, you may be able to get a ticket, uh, but certainly lots of other people have got there before you. Um, <laughs> from a best-selling artist then to best-selling fiction, Daisy Hilliard has reviewed a number of books that ask the question, what constitutes successful writing? The main proponent of this question is the bestseller code, which uses literary analytics, computer-based research, to establish what makes certain books succeed and others fail. Here's a flavour. Bestsellers use do but not very, didn't instead of did not, intimacy sells, explicit sex does not, bestsellers use question marks and avoid exclamation marks, poor Donald Trump, (laughs) appealing proactive characters and a regularly pulsing plot are marketable, it says which may suggest its specialised subject is the bleeding obvious. I'm still happy to hear about the exclamation yeah, mark. There, I mean. there should be no, <laughs> no one should ever use an exclamation mark. I think that should just be written in stone. Um, elsewhere in the review, we hear from DBC Pierre, who opines that writing is heavy bombing. Make of that what you will. And from Jane Austen, who is set up as an exemplum of successful style. So what makes a book critically or commercially successful. And before we welcome Daisy, I just wanted to read out something from the afterword of Lolita, in which Nabokov recalls some commercial advice he received, which is one of my favourite things ever. This is what he says. One reader suggested that his firm might consider publication if I turned my Lolita into a 12-year-old boy and had him seduced by Humbert, a farmer, in a barn, amidst gaunt and arid surroundings. All this set forth in short, strong, realistic sentences. He acts crazy. We all act crazy, I guess. I guess God acts crazy. <laughs> the Possibly the worst piece of uh, publishing advice ever recorded in print. Uh, <laughs> Daisy joins us now. So you, you've, you've ploughed through some relatively uh, um, challenging stuff here. Is it possible to use literary analysis to predict a bestseller, do you think? Um, the authors of the bestseller code think that it is. Uh, and they set out their very definite prescription for doing so. So how, in what way and how would that work, do you think? Well, I suppose much of what they're looking at is um, at its kind of most uh, ambitious is, uh, is a comment on the human condition and what kind of deep desires we have. Mm. Um, you know, why do we like to read books about young women being murdered, for example, or books with the girl in the title? Um, is this depressing and soul-destroying, or is this just sort of the progress of modernity? Because there's a the kind of thing happened in American sports, which was broadly similar. There's a load of people who said, well, you can't quantify talent, uh, and you can only judge talent by scouts who've, who've been there before. So there's a kind of tradition of experience is the real key to everything. And then people came and said, no, 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 we can use statistical analysis, and we can quantify exactly what makes a good player and what doesn't. There's a real sort of cultural clash between those two sides of the argument. Is something similar liable to happen here where you can say, look, we can quantify a successful book. Whether we can quantify a good book might be a different point. Do you, do you think that's, this is where this is headed? I think certainly people are, you'd imagine people are going to try to, to quantify a good book and that there'll be a kind of sense of a clash of civilizations. I suppose um, it will be about finding someone interesting um, who is able to read the statistics in an interesting way yeah. and make draw interesting conclusions from them. And, and you know, that might be a way which, you know, to find new writing. 
because mm, you you would get to a point where where the thing was to work against the the kind of agreed formula, and that's what would make great literature would be working against the established uh, formula. But I think in films, I, I remember reading an interview with Will Smith, the Hollywood actor, and he when he was trying to make his career work, he sat down with his agent and they worked. They looked at the top hundred best film, the most successful films of the last ten years, and they tried to draw parallels. Which one of the things is so Aliens is popular. Um, so he made Men in Black. Um, uh, Westerns was popular, so he made uh, Wild, Wild Wild West. West. Uh, and he actually just, they, they sat down and kind of formulated a criteria. And I presume that's what publishers do to a certain extent. And that's why when Fifty Shades of Grey is published, you then get a slew of other to kind of tap that's kind of trying to, trying to, to follow on from that. That's, it's, it's probably always been that way, hasn't it? Well, Fifty Shades of Grey is an interesting example because it, it slightly contradicts uh, Archer and Jocker's thesis that um, uh, explicit sex doesn't sell. Um, and they have to do some kind of, I would say, perhaps contorted reason uh, readings in order to justify why uh, Fifty Shades did work. It was a surprise. You also reviewed the Jane Austen Writers Club by Rebecca Smith. Um, what advice did you get from from Austen from Beyond, Beyond the Grave, and did did the setup of the book work for you? The setup of the book was questionable for me in that um, I felt that there was a great deal of um, quotation from Austen and not much from Smith. So I felt that I was really enjoying reading some of Austin's letters and um, and, and notes, and um, but that there wasn't so much transition between reading Austin and and, and seeing what, how the way in which he wrote could be useful to um, uh, novice writers. I think this is a book very much for for people who are uh, tentative about writing. Jane Austen's very trendy at the minute. Obviously, it's the the, the bicentennial. I suppose anything that sends yeah. people back to Austin's broadly a good thing, but you, you can't necessarily... No, no one's dis- ever left her. I mean, she's yeah, perpetually... Perpetually popular. there, yeah. But you can't distill any advice that comes out of us and think, oh, that, 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 that would make me write in a different way. Well, I wouldn't say this is a, a, advice, but I think the thing that I, um, I most enjoyed was the sense that uh, one shouldn't take any of it too seriously. I think Austin's an interesting one in this context as well, isn't she? Because she 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 comes from a time she represents a time uh, very much pre-modernism when good plots and and the, the things that one might associate with you know genre fiction or whatever and literary acuity were not considered to be mutually exclusive. Absolutely. The final one that you, you did is alchemy: writers on truth, lies, and fiction. Where does this fit into to, to the other books? Uh, was this a useful the useful thing? I don't think it would be a useful book for um, people who are looking for practical advice on writing. Um, it's a book, in, it's a, a very deeply reflective and searching book. Um, all the authors are reflecting on their own um, writing history, really, rather than writing practice, their kind of feelings and thoughts about writing. Daisy, thank you so much. Thank you very much. Bye. All right, bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Uh, I wonder, Thea, do writers know what makes good writing? I think a more interesting question is okay, how would they <laughs> is how would Cut they how would they define what is good how would they define what is success I mean I think all of these books here you kind of almost feel like they should be appended with um George Orwell's essay you know why why I write Yeah um because how can you how can you define I mean is it is it would making a lot of money be success or would people talking about it be well, I think, the, yeah, and I think the bestseller code, I suspect, as Daisy <clears throat> kind of implied, the bestseller code is, is commercial. Mm. And people, writers on truth, lies and fiction, I suspect is a little bit more self-indulgent, yes. sort of mm. talking about truth and beauty. My favourite advice for writing, Elmore, have you heard Elmore Leonard's r- rules for writing? 
No. It's brilliant. There's 10 rules for writing he wrote. Um, uh, it begins with, first rule is never begin a book with weather, which I think is brilliant. <laughs> and it ends with, if, it's, if, if it sounds like writing, I rewrite it. That's his summary of, of all rules. It's, it's thing, and I just wonder whether you can ever, you can clearly never be prescriptive. Mm-hmm. But do you become a better you become a better writer, don't you, by reading good writing? Not yeah. necessarily good writing about writing. Mm-hmm. Well, who was it? Uh, uh, was it William Faulkner who said about how to become a writer? Just read everything, read the good stuff, the bad stuff, yeah. read trash, and yeah. you know, then like a carpenter, whatever doesn't work, you throw out at yeah. the end of the day and and get on with it. And I think that's probably the school of 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 writing that is prevailing at the moment. I, I would think people seem to read so widely and. And, you know, since the the much talk about talked about boundary between genre fiction and literary fiction collapsed years ago and we're yeah. sort of dancing on the space where it, it, it once was, people people draw from all, all, all different sources. Yeah, it's interesting. I think well-written genre fiction has a sort of beauty. Mm, and it's the stuff that's, so. that's doing best now, you know, from Sarah Perry to... Kate Atkinson, yeah, Cormac yeah. McCarthy, that, that that would all be... Yeah, Cormac McCarthy's a very good example of yeah. that, which is just there, just slightly elevated. James Elroy probably is another example. Yeah. It's just slightly elevated genre fiction. And that, yeah, and that is very successful. It's interesting. I, I, I suspect the answer is once you get too prescriptive, you start to, 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 to kill it. Yeah, <laughs> mm. there's probably something in that. That's almost all we have time for this week. Uh, thanks to Jerry Kimber, the intrepid Anna Vo and Daisy Hildyard. Uh, Let me remind you to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back every week this year with thoughts on big pieces in the TLS and important cultural and artistic issues. This week's paper is now on sale with the pieces we have been discussing, plus Gillian Tyndall on 2,000 Years of Spitalfields, Marjorie Perloff on the scribblings of Cy Twombly, Candida Baker on the age of the horse which has kind of weirdly split the TLS offices there because uh, George, who works with us, he hates horses so much. He's afraid much. of horses. He's afraid of horses. <laughs> Do you like... You're, you're, you're pro-horse, aren't you? I'm, pro, I'm very pro-horse. You commissioned the piece. I did commission the piece. I think it's it's a lovely piece. It's a lovely cover we've <laughs> got out of it. We, we, we've piece. got a lovely picture of a, of a cowgirl on a horse, which is very beautifully shot. We've also got Eamon Duffy on the Reformation, Michelle Pridmore-Brown on that thorny question of how men get old. You can visit our website, the-tls.co.uk, to read it all and learn more about our print and digital subscriptions there. And do come back daily to the site for new original pieces from TLS writers, including we've got a little mini-series on how Trump may bring peace or chaos to countries like Syria, Israel and China. We've tried to do the thing where we might commission people who might not just say how awful Trump is. Striving for balance. Striving. It's very hard to do. (laughs) I was talking to another editor about that, and it's really hard to get good people to write something that's not just he's awful. Mm. Uh, but we may have done that. Paul Thompson is written on the ethics of genetic modification and our 20 questions come from Michael Chabon, who thinks Odin makes Jehovah look like a whiny, pissant Trumpian toddler man. <laughs> His words. He also doesn't like Fanny Price or Esther Summerson either. Someone else didn't like Fanny Price. Um, Devaney Loza didn't like Oh, she didn't, but Ben Markovitz did. Did. Yeah. So she's divisive. Goes on. It yeah. Goes on. Where do you stand on the great Fanny Price debate, which we now I, appear I thought, to be having? I thought. I think I've said this. I, I think I quite liked her if if she could be read as a self, a kind of a, a self questioning, a, a, a satirical persona. Yeah. I think she's quite interesting. She's yeah. certainly not my least favourite character. No, it, isn't it interesting? She's, she's, I would never have had her down as this divisive figure. But there you go. The great thing about twenty questions is it's amazing how we've now done about twenty or thirty of them, mm-hmm. and it's people want to have a go at. Uh, 
the, 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 the Victorian kind of Austin or Victorian mm. greats and lots of it's Dickens. It's the stuff that and... they've been told, oh, this is, you know, this is, you can't question the greatness of this. Yeah. I wonder if we'll ever get anyone coming on and saying, you know that Shakespeare, I, I just can't. I can't be getting on with Shakespeare. Well, you, you say that, Thea, but Michael the Dr Keynes, our Shakespearean expert. Oh, yes, of He did Shakespeare was overrated. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm crestfallen about that. I think that's still somewhere in our archives. Yeah, to, to yeah, people, yeah, it's, it's, yeah we, did, it was, we recorded we it, didn't recorded we? It, yeah. And he said Shakespeare was like... I'll move <laughs> on, it's too sad. You can follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook and do review us on iTunes. Do join us next week where we shall be celebrating, if that is the right word, which it isn't, 100 years of the Russian Revolution. No party poppers. Sorry. No, it'll be... <laughs> Not it'll, even any cheese. No, yeah. <laughs> we'll have no workers' cheese to get through it. Until next time, from Thea and from me, goodbye. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com.